I want to open our time today by uh, continuing to emphasize that we are in a 30-day prayer push, prayer emphasis. We have uh, little cards, just kind of reminders, stick in your Bible um, at, the, at the Connection Center. Uh, plug into the power of prayer. This, the goal uh, is what we call 24-7 prayer, 24-7 prayer in September. That is to say, we're going to pray seven days a week, unbroken prayer, prayer, pray through the entire month without missing a single day. And that's not just thanking God for our food. That's just the same grace, right? We're praying significantly every single day with the goal of accumulating 24 hours of prayer by the end of the month, right? So that by the end of the month, we will have prayed at least one full, the equivalent of one full day around the clock. And I want to tell you, it has been a tremendous time of refreshing for me. I'm, we're, get, we're still settling in, very busy, getting to know some of you better and different activities. Uh, but we've been, we've been painting the parsonage, and it, it's been, woo, it's been hallelujah. And we've had some help, and uh, we're getting the boxes, uh, we're, we're on our last leg of the boxes. And, uh, but I've been seeking the Lord, and it, there's such a refreshing and flow when you uh, discipline yourself to pray uh, day after day and not miss any day. So there's, there's kind of carryover, right? There's carryover from one day to the next. We've provided uh, prayer cards here also at, uh, at the uh, Connection Center. We handed these out last week in the bulletin. Um, you can use that kind of as a prayer guide. Uh, put your own prayer needs on the back and uh, also keep that in your Bible or in a place convenient uh, to seek the Lord. And so what we're doing right now, we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, or maybe better said, the Disciples' Prayer, often known as the Our Father. Uh, and we're uh, kind of walking through it. We're just on the front end of this, and we're going to walk through carefully and, and kind, of, kind of take apart that prayer as the Lord Jesus taught the prayer to his disciples to understand it better. So uh, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 6, and it says, and we're going to be opening message after message with this passage for a while, but then going deep on individual verses. It says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this is the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught. Today, I want to look at that first line. And when I say the first line, I mean the very first line, our Father in heaven. So this is, this is my message on four words, right? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this place. We thank you for this community of faith, and we thank you for your word. And we ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear Lord God, a heart to understand, a spirit to receive, and I pray, God, that you give me a tongue to speak 
uh, God, under the anointing of your Holy Spirit with only that sense and that spirit that you have for your people today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let me talk about this first line. The first thing that I want to note is the first word in the prayer. The first word in the prayer. Now, our rendering is our Father in heaven. So the first word for us is the word our. But in the original language, uh, the first word in Greek is pater, which we translate uh, father, right? Uh, from, from that word, we get words like paternal or paternalistic, pater. Uh, that is the first word in the actual original text, and a, probably a better literal rendering would be father of ours, right? That it's, it's, it's pater humon in, in Greek, father of ours. So the first word is father. This is a direct address. In other words, we're opening up the prayer uh, addressing the father. That is a very powerful statement, and it, it opens a whole can of worms for us. There are few words in our language that carry more baggage than the word father. It is a loaded word. We live today in a fearful, increasingly fatherless, abandoned generation. You, you, you talk to people uh, in the realm of sociology, you talk to people in the realm of counseling and psychology, even economics. You talk to people across the board, and it doesn't matter whether they're people of faith or whether they're, they're secular people. Uh, across the board, it's sort of an increasing murmur that's rising up where people are like, we've got a problem. We've got a problem in our society, and it's a problem with fatherhood where more and more children are without a father, where there's a crisis, not, and, and, and a lot of uh, children who have fathers, the father uh, suffered himself. There's a dysfunctional aspect that's going on. I mean, I kind of made a joke last week. Anybody here not from a dysfunctional family? Like, everybody's got some sort of dysfunction that's going on. I mean, in my, in my own family, just to give an, an example <clears throat> of just a couple generations back, uh, my grandfather... <clears throat> in 1929, was a stockbroker. He was a, he was in his 30s, and he was a stockbroker. He was actually in New York on that fateful day when the stock market crashed, and uh, he he went because of the way things were. He went into enormous debt. He had he had sold stocks to people. They had purchased on the margin. Uh, meaning basically a stockbroker, he had co-signed uh, for their, for their uh, stock purchase, and they all went bankrupt, and he was stuck with a debt. He went over $100,000 in debt in 1929. Um, he was a man of great principle. He refused by all means, by any means. Everybody pressured him, look, Thomas, just declare bankruptcy. It's done. And he refused to de declare bankruptcy, uh, and that's, that's tremendous principle, um, but the pressure broke him, and he became an alcoholic. And he was very abusive in the household. He was very abusive to my father. He was very abusive to my aunts. And ultimately, he joined AA. He was one of that very first generation that joined AA, and he was sober the rest of his life. Uh, but he was, he, uh, his crisis marked my father. And my father had to go through a profound uh, uh, 
conversion experience to Christ uh, after he served in World War II and, and, and wrestled with things his whole life long because of this. this is, and this is a situation where uh, the family held together, but there was, there was crisis. And I don't want to ask for a show of hands how many have been through crisis because there's no need. Everybody's, gonna, everybody's like this, right? Everybody's been through crisis. There's this crisis, but increasingly we have it going on. I, as, a, as a college professor, I would look at my students and uh, there are different classes where they would write essays about their family life or different things they've been through. And I was, I was smitten by the crisis of fatherhood. That's, and this is, a, this is a Christian university where students are studying for ministry. And the, the crisis of fatherhood is so great. But I want to say this. For how easy it is to lament and say, well, this is our generation. It's the way it is. I want to make an assertion. This is the human condition. This is part of the human condition. And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. God created humanity. He created them, says the word of God, male and female. He created them to be a family. We can look and all the mysteries, all the different things we look through scripture, there's all these passages. How many, how many have a few passages of scripture? The second you get to heaven and you get past that first hug and that first time on Jesus' lap and being with him and, oh, I'm here, hallelujah, I made it. Hallelujah. Okay, Lord, I got some questions. Look, now what does this verse mean? Uh, what does this other thing mean? And what is it with the Bermuda Triangle, really? I mean, like, what's going on? Like, there's all sorts of questions that we, that we would have. Uh, but I want to tell you, in the deeps and the mysteries of pre-time eternity, I'm going to put across a very simple truth. Why did God make us? He made us because he's a dad and he wanted a family. It's just that simple. He created humanity in his image to have a family. But we know the story, sin entered the picture. And when sin entered the picture, alienation entered the picture. God said to Adam, the day you eat of the tree, you'll die. Adam didn't die physically, but he did die spiritually. Spiritual separation came in between Adam and Eve and the father. And in that void of spiritual death, something flooded in. And that something was fear. I often wonder, Adam and Eve hiding themselves as God comes and walks in the cool of the day, and God speaks out and says, Adam, where are you? Let me give you a hint. When God asks a question, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know. Every question he asks is a leading question. When God asked when Jesus asked the disciples, what were you uh, talking about along the road? It doesn't mean he doesn't know. When, when God spoke to uh, Elijah in the cave and said, uh, what are you doing here? It doesn't mean he doesn't know. And when God said, Adam, where are you? It doesn't mean he didn't know. I often wonder how Adam described. The verse says, I was afraid. So I hid myself. That's a translation for our benefit of what he expressed. I imagine he couldn't use that economy of words because he had never experienced fear before. He didn't even know what it was. 
He knew how to name the animals. He knew how to sing a love song to his wife. But he didn't have a word for fear, friends, because it never existed. But now it was the dominant force in his life. And that fear is the mother of every other fear. Fear of loss. Fear of being alone. Fear of lack. Fear of sickness. Fear of death. Every fear springs from that terrible one fear. It's the fear that begets all fear. It's the fear that comes in. It's us being afraid of God. We're not talking about reverential fear. We're not talking about when the Old Testament says, hey, fear God and serve him. That's reverential fear. That's redemptive fear. That's awe. That's what we felt this morning as we worshiped. We're not talking about that. We're talking about paralyzing, alienating, separating, chilling, bone-chilling fear. And it was never God's will that we experience that fear. But we all know that isn't the rest of the story. I want to read from Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 16. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Through Christ, we are adopted as sons. Through Christ, we're adopted as sons. I've said this before. I've preached it before from this pulpit, but some people might not have heard it. If you look and you read the words of the Apostle Paul very carefully in the book of Galatians and the book of Colossians, where he says... There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying it very deliberately even to the sisters. Why? Because he's using inheritance language from the, the day and time that he was in. Only sons could inherit. So he goes to great lengths to spread that, that blessing, that umbrella of covering and, and, and adoption over everyone including women, to say, you're sons. You're counted as sons. The spirit of adoption floods in and expels the spirit of fear. And adoption here means full status. I've dealt with some people in the past, as a pastor, as a professor, dealt with different people, and they're like, I just struggle, you know, because, because I'm, I'm, I'm adopted and my, my, my birth mother gave me up and and, and there's, this, there's this sort of, you know, they, they realized it later in life or were told later in life and they're kind of struggling with that. Listen, this is the exact opposite of that mentality. It's, it's, it's full inclusion. It's God's seal of approval upon you. It's God looking upon you as he looks on Jesus. Complete, wonderful acceptance warm reception in the presence of God, drives out fear. All fear is driven out. All that alienation that came in the garden now is nullified, and we have the warm reception. And by that spirit, it says by him, what is the spirit of adoption? That's the Holy Spirit, right? That's the, the Holy Spirit that regenerates us and fills us and empowers us. It doesn't say by it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, a him. And by him, we cry, Abba, 
Father. Now, what does Abba mean? There's a lot of stuff floating around. Well, what, what, what does Abba mean? Um, Abba is an Aramaic word. Aramaic is a first cousin language to Hebrew. If you look in the Old Testament, every, every place where there's a name with the, the letters A, B in a sequence in front of it um, means father, right? There's father means some, something. So Abijah, uh, there's a king named Abijah. Abijah means Yahweh is my father, right? So Abraham, Ab, Abraham means exalted father. Or Eliab, uh, one of the sons of Jesse, older brother of, uh, of uh, David, means Eliab, means God is my father, and so on, right? Anywhere there's an A-B, whether it's the beginning of the word, the end of the word, that, that's father in Hebrew. And so Abba is, is what we call a diminutive. It's a familiar form of father. It's a tender form. So uh, a lot of people have kind of watered this. I had people come to me and say, look, this whole, some people are getting kind of gooey about it, like, Abba, like, me little, my little daddy, my little daddy upstairs. He's not, no, no. But it is tender and familiar. There's two words for father in Aramaic. If I were talking about any one of your fathers, I'm going to use one of those words. If I'm going to talk about my father, I say Abba. It's a possessive, right? It's, it's, it's a warm for me. It doesn't mean it's stripped of dignity. It doesn't mean it's stripped of majesty. But it is saying, my father. God is, God is my father. Now, <laughs> there's a beautiful verse, 1 John 3, verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That is a very powerful statement. Now, let me tell you what I, I garner out of verses like this and even the last one in the light of Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven. In that opening line, our Father in heaven. Can we say that together? Our Father in heaven. There's balance in that one line. Four words in English. There's balance. Father communicates closeness, intimacy, approachability, even touchability. That's, that's what father means. It indicates a relationship that's already established. I can remember when I was new and if I was raised in a Christian home, uh, uh, traditional, uh, we call it mainline high church Christian home, um, but I didn't know the Lord. Like many people, raised religious, but you don't, you don't really have a relationship with him. And it, was, it, was, uh, it put upon me precisely the opposite of what God intends in his word. I would say, our Father which art in heaven and so forth, I pray that prayer, but the very thought of God, it was, there, was a, there was a stiffness, there was a, this is not approachable, this is not touchable, there's a, there's a separation that's going on there. Let me tell you the world in which Jesus taught this prayer. The Hebrews had blown it so many times. They had been disciplined by God so many times. Northern tribe of Israel went into exile and never came back. We call those the ten lost tribes. Judah went into exile in the Babylon, did come back, but took serious and permanent damage from it. 
And so by the time they came back and they were setting things up and Ezra came and taught them the law and they were trying to get established, they said, we don't want to take the name of the Lord in vain. You know how they solved that? They didn't say the name of the Lord at all. That's how they, that's how they did it. The name of the Lord in Hebrew, Yahweh, they stopped saying that word at all. Hey, that's the number one way not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Just never say the name of the Lord. Right? So instead, they said Adonai, which means Lord. They just, it's a, it's a, it's, they used a title instead of a, a, an actual name. The name of the Lord that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. They stopped saying that name entirely. They just put up a wall. So here comes along Jesus and says, call God Abba. Father. He doesn't just take it back to saying the name. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He said, call him dad. Near, familiar, close, approachable, touchable. But there's a balance in this, and that is in heaven. So God, the Father, close, intimate, touchable, but in heaven, transcendent, awesome, divine. You know, here is another human trait. We want things hyper simple. We want rules, just like the Jews saying, hey, here's a rule for you. There's a way to avoid taking the name of the Lord in vain. Just don't say the name of the Lord at all. We want everything super simple. And as a result, very often, we end up in one ditch of one extreme or another. One ditch is only God is close. God is only close. He's touchable. And once in a while, you run into somebody like that uh, who is just, they talk about God like he's their next door neighbor. You know? Everything is ooh, 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 ooh. And there's no awe of God. They, they don't see God as someone who is their eternal judge. They don't see God as holy. They don't see God as other. Look, the angels at the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, they're in God's presence all the time. And they're saying, holy, 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 whoa, whoa. I mean, sinless angels are in awe of God. God deserves our awe. But if you go too far that way, you end up being a Muslim. God is sovereign. God is Lord. God is exalted. God is untouchable. Whatever happens, that's the will of Allah. And that's just, that's just the way it is. You, just, you don't go near him. You just, you just bow down five times a day and you just, you just hope for the best when you die. Well, that's, that's no good. Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to relate to the Father that way. Right? So now you're in the other ditch. Right? So we, we, we've got to strike balance. Balance is one of the most important words for a healthy relationship with God. Look, all people need intimacy. All people crave intimacy. is a basic human need. Intimacy. God knows our need for human relationships. He, ne he knows about that need. And he facilitates that need. But I want to tell you, there isn't a human being on this planet that's going to satisfy your deep, fundamental need for intimacy. Only God can satisfy that need. And this is a problem. I'll tell you right now. 
This is free marriage counseling. I won't even charge you for this. this is, I'll just throw this in. There's marriages that founder in part because they're looking at all this Hollywood nonsense and they're, you know, it's their, their idea going into marriage is somewhere a mixture between Hollywood, um, love songs on the radio from a soft rock station, and um, Disney movies. And they expect that other person to fulfill every need and every craving and every longing and every expectation they have and nobody should be saddled with those expectations. Nobody can live up to them. No man can be Prince Charming and no woman can be Sleeping Beauty. It just, just doesn't, doesn't happen. Can't happen. If we go to God, and we have God fill our inner craving for intimacy. I mean, that, that's, why, that's why Pastor Joseph doesn't want to hurry worship. That's why when, when you get into worship, hey, look, you know, I, I mean, read, read Song of Solomon. I mean, there's some of this stuff going on where the, the bridegroom, the Lord comes and knocks, and the, and the bride goes, I already, I'm already washed up. I'm already in bed. I don't have time for this. You don't do that to the groom. The groom, what, what bride on her wedding night is going to be like, you know, honey, I just have a killer of a headache. You know, I just, you know, where's that fuzzy bathrobe and those great big slippers that I've had since I was 12? You know, I just, you know, I just, you know, ow. You know, do you have some time? At all? Uh, um, you know, it's the groom. When the presence of the Lord shows up, don't be, in a, don't be in a hurry to leave the presence of the king. Because that extra 10 minutes in God's presence can change your entire week and can change your entire life. That forms the bulwark inside of you to keep you away from the spiritual junk food that the devil's throwing at you across the internet and magazines and TV and in the workplace all day long. Because the devil is preying upon our vulnerability and our need for intimacy that we're not getting fulfilled elsewhere. So get it filled in the house of God, saints. Get it filled in his presence and prayer. Read the word. Meditate on that stuff. Get to know him. That's what we're talking about, knowing God. Everybody has that need for intimacy. So we call on him as father. He's opened the way. He's, he's nuked. The spirit of fear that binds you and separates you from him. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He's not mad at you. He sent his son to die for you so that all, all your sins will be wiped away. Yes, even that ugly one that nobody knows about. And wipe that away and bring you into his presence and, re and reconcile you to him. He's crazy about you. He's dying to hear your voice. In prayer, in song, in worship, even complaint. He would rather hear that than have you be silent. He wants you. That's intimacy. But at the same time as people need intimacy, people need God to be God. You, they might not know they do, but they do. We are not idolaters. Here's the difference between true Christians and idolaters. Idolaters have their idol. They set it up. Okay, let's, this is going to be my idol right now. You know, okay, so, oh, oh my God. Oh, save me. And hell, oh, This doesn't work there. I'll put it there. I'll worship it there. No, that I'll put it there. Ah, right. Oh, yes. My God, I'm looking to you. Uh. All right, look, you better put out, man. Uh, I've got some needs. 
because uh, if you don't worship that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship this. Um, it's bigger anyway. So who's in control under that scenario? Who's in control? I'm in control. I'm calling the shots, right? And if it doesn't produce, I switch gods. Here's the difference between an idol, the gods of the nations, the gods of the Gentiles, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is really God. He's got a mind of his own. He's got a plan for you, and he's not going to explain himself to you. He's compassionate, but sometimes he's just going to, you don't get this right now, just trust me. You're like, trust you? You're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm God. You know, it just comes with the territory. He's almighty. He's transcendent. He's powerful, but he's tender and compassionate. I felt during worship today, we were brushing up against that balance. During worship, we're brushing up against it, right? Because there's awe of him, and there's also intimacy with him. It's both. That's the sweet spot. And that's when, what we get when we say, our Father in heaven. Now, I want to look at one last scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the word there that's translated says every family, even the footnote says it, so I'm not trying to pull rank here could be translated or rendered fatherhood. The word in Greek is patria, patria. Notice how similar patria is to pater, uh, the, the, the word for father. Patria means fatherhood. And what he's saying here is, uh, he's, he's referring to something. The, the very idea of fatherhood comes from the fatherhood of God. Every earthly father draws their fatherhood. Now, let me, I'm going to sketch this out to you, for you very, very quickly. Very quickly. One of the oldest truths, ideas, taught by the church from the very beginning, I'm talking almost 2,000 years, is that God is Father and the church is Mother. God is Father and the church is Mother. Now, why, why are we using those metaphors? We call them living metaphors, but why are we using those metaphors? I'll explain to you. In the human realm, the role of the mother, not exclusively, exclusively, but overwhelmingly, the role of the mother is the nurturer. When the child is born to that couple, mom's on deck. Overwhelmingly, it's her time. Not to say that the, the father can't do some nurturing, but that's one of the reasons why we see, when we see when we see a, a father uh, nurturing and, and, and giving a bottle to an infant or uh, changing a diaper, everybody's like, blow the trumpets, dad's changing a diaper. When mom changes a diaper, does anybody blow a trumpet? No. This is par for the course. <laughs> this is no, why? Because the mother is understood to be the nurturer. That's her role while that child is a child. But when the child reaches mid-adolescent years and is getting to the point of leaving, now the whole time the father is caring, the father is providing and covering and protecting, but the role of the father as the child gets older becomes more prominent because the father is the identity imparter. 
The Father is the one who imparts that identity. The Father is the one who helps establish and make that child feel secure. It was very, very interesting to see, uh, and I've seen it as a pastor, I've seen it in, 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 in different stages, to see the surprise on a mother's face when uh, that child, whether it's a son or a daughter, is, is looking to establish themselves, maybe go off to college, establish themselves, and all of a sudden they start consulting naturally. They start consulting more with dad. And mom's like, what's going on? Am I chopped liver? No, it's just those are complementary roles, and they're both playing out. Now, why did I say all that? I said it to, to say this. When somebody first comes to Christ, they're a newborn in Christ. Most of their relationship with God is through the church. The church is doing the nurturing. The church is doing the caring. The church is doing the feeding. And that person's understanding of God is very often mediated through the church. This is one of the first things that happened to me when I came to the Lord. Everything was through the church. Everybody in church was just absolutely, I mean, I thought wings were going out of their back. I thought they're angels. Everybody's just wonderful. Everything, everything I learned, I, every time I turned around, there was something yummy for me to eat. There was just, ooh, this is good. But you can't stay a child forever. It's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful images that you can see is a mother nursing her newborn. It's just an image of tenderness and protection and warmth. But it, that same picture becomes really, really weird if the child is a mid-age adolescent. That's just, well, that's wonky, bro. That's really, you know... But here's the thing, when people come in and they're new to the Lord, they're nurtured, but they must grow up in the faith and they must grow up and get a, listen, a direct, mature relationship with the Father. That's what brings stability and identity. I remember seeing, this is 30 years ago now, all these scandals hit the church. I was in seminary at the time. All these, we called them the Jimmy Jimmy scandals. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, there are other scandals. All these scandals hit the church. And I saw people wash out of the church. Well, if this is the, you know, if this is the gospel and this is the church and this is what Jesus is about, any little ripple in the church, whoo, there's all these washout. All these people go running away. Oh, this is just, that's somebody who's been, they might have been in the church, whoo, they could have been in the church 30, 40 years, but they've never matured to a place where they have a mature, direct relationship with the Father. Everything's mediated through the church. And so when something comes, woo, there's upset things in the church, they completely wash out. The foundation of their faith is gone. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But people with a mature relationship direct with the Father. Doesn't mean you don't, you're not off the hook coming to church, ever. Because we all need each other. We need to relate in community. But the basis, the, the foundation of your faith is not through the mother anymore. You're part of the mother now. You're relating directly to the father. It, it's a foundation. And you're not, you're, not, you're not running away and washing out on the basis of anything at all. God wants that for us. He wants to establish us in a mature relationship directly with him. That's where you're solid. That's where you weather the storm. That's where whatever, that's, 
the obvious answer to those people's cry and complain is, no, that, that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus is about. And if you knew that, listen, if you knew the Father directly, you'd know that. You'd be strong, and you'd, you'd, and you'd, help, you'd help the weak instead of being one of the weak. You'd help the weak. There's a beautiful story. It's a fiction um, written by Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway wrote a story about a father and son in Spain. And the father had a way, had taught, was teaching his son to live a certain way, and the son rebelled. The son wanted to go off and live his own life and make his own choices, and specifically he wanted to be a bullfighter, which is a deadly profession, and it's filled with vanity and dissolution. And, and, and so the father was grieved as his son. His son's name was Paco. Paco ran off. And time passed, and the grief became too great. And the father searched and searched, searched high and low for his son, and could never find Paco. And in desperation, he put an ad in the paper. And he said, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me tomorrow on the steps of the Hotel Montana in downtown Madrid, Papa. And the next day, this man at noon went downtown to the Hotel Montana, and there was practically a riot going on. The police were out having to control the crowd because there were 800 boys, all named Paco, that had read the newspaper and they had showed up, and they were seeking forgiveness. They were seeking forgiveness. So you say, well, it's, that's a fiction. That's just a story. Well, here's the backstory to it. Ernest Hemingway was raised in a religious home. He was raised in a religious home. His parents were very, very stiff. His parents both went to Wheaton College, same college where uh, Billy Graham went to school, same college where Pastor Joseph went to school. And they were very strict, and they were very hard-handed on him. And he became... Paco, he kind of went his own way. And his whole life, he searched for the approval that his parents never gave him. So when he wrote that fictional story about Paco and his father, he was really writing about himself. He was really writing about himself. God doesn't want that for you. God wants us to walk in love and reconciliation with him. And once we have that with him, then we can have it with each other. We can have it with each other. I want to invite uh, the musicians to come and those who help us with the Lord's Supper. I want to prepare. We're going to close our time today receiving communion. Once again, we practice open communion. That means all you have to be is a member of the body of Christ, and you are welcome to sup at the table because it's not our table, it's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's table. But what is the Lord's Supper about? If you read the account of Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper, the word Father is saturated. The whole thing is saturated with the word Father. Father is a word. 
that means something. It's not just a cute title. It means something to us. It means we're reconciled with God. And every prayer that we pray opens the way. Listen, we're in a time of prayer. We're in a time of transformation. We're in a time of seeking God. But we're never, as an individual, as individuals and as a church, we're never going to reach the potential that God has for us as people of prayer, as people of worship, as people of the Word of God, as a community that transforms the community that it's in if we don't get a hold of the simple truth that God loves us. God loves us. Brothers, please come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. of the passage in Ephesians 3 says this that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How many want to be filled with all the fullness of God? All the fullness of God. Paul says the road to being filled with all the fullness of God is through his power that teaches us his love. His love is so vast, it actually takes a working of his divine power for us to enter into a brief understanding of it. As we partake of the Lord's table today, I encourage you, release your faith. Believe for the miracle of God's revelation power that He is going to show you how much He loves you. It's not an event, it's a pilgrimage, it's a journey that he's going to show you how desperately he loves you and that the mad mug image of him that the devil is painted in your mind is a lie from the pit of hell. He loves you. He wants you. He wants you near. And he sent his only son to pay the price that you might know him. Hallelujah. That message is the message that saves the lowliest of sinners and it revives the most seasoned of saints. We are his. We are his people. We belong to him. And he's made himself to belong to us. Glory be to God. What a miracle. What a message. What a story. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. 
according to the word of God. We want to examine ourselves as we approach the Lord's table. Whatever, whatever's on your heart, clear your spirit before him. Draw near, draw near to him. Seek his face. Speak your love to him. Tell him how much you love him. Tell him how grateful you are that he loves you. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take this all of you and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Hold the bread before the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your body and your sacrifice, and we thank you that through you, the curtain of your body, we have access to the Father by your Holy Spirit. God, we receive with this bread the power of God to receive your love. Let's take the bread together. After supper, he also took the cup. He blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and drink it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood, all-powerful, all-cleansing. God, we repent of all sin, and we, confessing that we have sinned, Receive the cleansing to purify us and restore us 100% to you. Let's take the cup together. <clears throat> 